Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Pete. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, so today we have a podcast for you on a hot topic which is the management of proximal humerus fractures, particularly the use of the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty and uh, how that compares to open direction internal fixation. Now, there's really no consensus as to manage how to manage these injuries. And I think many surgeons would count the sequelae of these injuries, i.e. when things go poorly, as among their most challenging cases. So getting right the first time is really critical. So to discuss, we have brought on a few experts. So first from Penn State and Hershey, we have Dr. Gary Updegrove. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And next from California Pacific and San Francisco, we have Jim Kelly. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Peter. Having, uh, thank you for having us. And then finally, finishing Michigan and Ann Arbor, we have Dr. Bill Abender. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me here. It's been it's going to be great. All right. So this is a topic where there's a lot of back and forth, and I'm excited to learn from you three about how to best manage these injuries. But I wanted to start with the barrier cases. So I want to hear for each of you, what's the case that should clearly be managed with open reduction and internal fixation? Who is like the ideal patient for me, for you, where you would say, no one would argue this patient needs a, a plate or a nail or however you choose to fixate these fractures. Let's, let's hear from you first, Jim. Well, that's a, a pretty straight shot. I think um, patients who are young, patients who have uh, good bone quality, patients who obviously have a displaced fracture, which... Uh, uh, for which uh, open reduction internal fixation is uh, necessary. Obviously, it's best if they have a good medical condition and um, are motivated for surgery and willing uh, to comply with the uh, post-operative protocol. What about you, Bill? Anything you'd add to that? Any other patients you'd say, this is the ideal ORIF person? No, you know, I think Jim hit, hit it on the nail there. It's It's a lot of those patient factors um, good bone, young patient, uh, a fracture that needs surgery from a, a displacement and pattern perspective. Um, and uh, that, you know, it's not going to do well with not op management and uh, an arthroplasty would be, uh, in my opinion, overkill. So um, it's a lot of those patient factors Jim mentioned. What about you, Gary? In, in Pennsylvania, who's the patient you're putting a plate on? Well, proximal humerus fractures, they generally present in that bimodal distribution. You know, your younger, healthier, high energy trauma, good bone quality compared to the uh, elderly, low energy mechanism, osteoporotic type fractures. So the open, open direction internal fixation patients are in general the, you know, younger, high energy trauma type patients, whereas the, the osteoporotic type fractures are the ones that are more discussion for arthroplasty options in general. Let's follow that up a little bit. So what are the absolute indications for reverse in this, you know, in this patient population? You have your young listeners during board collection. What must they do or what, what type of patients must get a reverse? Gary, let's start with you. So that's a, an answer from me where I said nobody must get a reverse, right? Nobody needs an arthroplasty. I tell my patients this is not cancer. It's not heart disease. I'm not saving your life. So nobody needs a shoulder replacement. Um, 
that being said, there are certainly patients that are better candidates for shoulder replacements, depending on uh, demographics, uh, outcomes, risk for complications, their goals. Um, so the the elderly patient with displaced fractures, especially fracture dislocations, they're maybe not quite as cuff dependent type patients, uh, poor bone quality, high reoperation risk. Those patients I'm looking more towards arthroplasty, but no one needs an arthroplasty. Bill, what are your thoughts? Same thing, anything different? Anyone in your practice always getting an arthroplasty? No, I agree with Gary. There's there's no one that's always getting an arthroplasty, but there's always that patient that's having that I'm having that conversation with, right? So that displaced, essentially four-part fracture or uh, where the head's already dislocated, you're going to think about it. But, you know, if that patient's 84, a Jehovah's Witness, wheelchair bound, not a walker dependent, lives in a nursing home with lots of uh, help, that patient may do just fine. Um, with non-operative management without the potential risks of surgery. So I agree with Gary, no one must have it, but um, there's certain fracture patterns where you're going to have that conversation with the patient and or their family. Jim, anything on your end that's different or anything to, to you know add to this? No, I think Gary and Bill have done a great job already. The, 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 the simplistic way I look at it is that if you can't fix it uh, or if you predict that when you fix it, it's going to fall apart um, in a patient who's a surgical candidate, then uh, that person gets a reverse for me. All right, so let's do some kind of more specific situations and I'm hoping for a little more rapid fire and let's just to lay some ground rules here. Let's pretend for each of these you've already decided that they're an operative candidate and there's someone you're gonna operate on. I wanna hear for each of these things, does this bias you towards doing an arthroplasty or does this bias you towards doing a more fracture surgery, open direction internal fixation? So let's talk first, displaced two-part surgical neck. For you, more likely arthroplasty, more likely nail or plate. What do you think, Jim? So if you're talking uh, a surgical neck fracture, which is the most typical two-part that's mostly a nail for me and somebody who has appropriate bone quality. What about you, Bill? Is that an, is that more likely a nail, more likely a plate? Uh, for me, that's, that's a, a plate uh, fixation, just more what I'm uh, used to, but I don't think there's anything wrong with doing a nail there. What do you think, Gary? You think, is that, is that ever a patient you're doing an arthroplasty for? Is that always a, is that always a fixer? Um, in general, that's, nail versus plate i'm probably in between the two i'd i'd say i'm drift a little bit more towards plate fixation but i have no problem also using intramedullary fixation it's actually a patient i'm more drift away from uh an arthroplasty for fracture or because i think fixation would be better and uh i don't think the arthroplasty is necessarily managing the fracture well in that case okay let's talk about let's talk about another situation the fracture dislocation, you know, the head is no longer in the glenoid fossa. You know, the head is no longer connected to the shaft. The shaft is the shaft is in line with the glenoid, but the head is no longer in line with the glenoid. Is that does that bias you one way or the other? Or is that a situation, Gary, in which you think that's always an arthroplasty? 
No, I was actually looking through my cases, putting together some presentations recently and uh, involved in a research study looking at outcomes of proximal hemorrhoid fracture dislocations. And it's a, uh, I may be biased a little bit more towards reverse uh, in that situation, as many of these are transferred into us and may come in a somewhat subacute or delayed presentation, which would drift me towards arthroplasty. Uh, but that being said, I have a number of cases with underwent open direction internal fixation, even in fracture dislocation. What about you, Bill? Um, so for me, um, and I'd really be looking forward to reading that study, but, um, it, you know, it's, it's the patient factors there. So a 30 year old with a fracture dislocation, I'm going to lean towards, um, trying to fix that. Um, if they're older, um, towards an arthroplasty, but I'm in a similar situation as Gary's, they're usually coming in a little bit, um, subacute or chronic, um, where I think the head viability is going to be pretty, uh, low and, um, probably ultimately uh, fail their open reduction internal fixation. What are your thoughts, Jim? I agree with all that. I, I think uh, that to emphasize it, and I, I suspect everybody does sim makes similar decisions to me, is that for the cases that are in between, uh, certainly some of these can be fixed um, and can be fixed very nicely with a, with a plate and screws. And when what it comes down to a lot of times is what is the bone quality when you get in there after you reduce it what's the configuration of the fracture and how easy is it going to be to get a plate on there so uh for most of these you're going to the operating room unless the patient's very sick and and having both the plate and the reverse in the operating room makes it quite simple because when you get it's usually quite obvious once you get there and you reduce it it's pretty obvious oftentimes which direction you need to go I love that approach of having both available. So let's talk about one other situation, the patient who needs to bear weight through the arm. So someone who's either they're an amputee, they're wheelchair bound from a spinal cord injury, someone who really needs to transfer through their arm to have proximal humerus fracture, let's pretend they're 65 years old. What are your thoughts, Jim? Is that you're going to push that person towards an arthroplasty or you're going to say, we're going to fix it and push you in rehab? Well, I, I think there's... A uh, 65 year old patient, again, you, you, we don't have the backstory on this. What's their other medical comorbidities? How long do they have to live? You know, if you do a reverse into 65 and this person's living to 85 or 95, you know, you could have complications from a reverse. So the plate and screw or intramedullary rod can be very attractive if you can fix it. I, I still think, for me, again, the principle comes down to can I fix it? And will it, are the results reliable based upon the, the fracture configuration quality of bone? And I'm generally going to try and go and fix it. Um, if they're elderly, you know, if this is a 65-year-old elderly appearing person, uh, that, that they usually have poor bone quality. That's going to push me towards the reverse, which does allow uh, for me uh, a little bit earlier weight bearing. What about you, Bill? Is there a difference in time to weight bearing between open erection fixation and reverse, or are they the same? Does this not matter to you? So, to me, you know, the, that's the scenario, especially if it's you know a two-part or a minimally displaced three-four part um, to nail, um, where I might let them weight bear a little earlier if I'm thinking about fixation if it's a fixable fracture. 
Um, but you know, as we as you kind of give the scenario, right? If it's an amputee, you know, why are they an amputee? Or is there A one C eleven five? You know, and that's someone where I might lean towards doing an, an arthroplasty, knowing that you know it might get infected, you might still end up with a complication, but it's less likely in my mind to to fall apart and let them weigh bear a little bit. Um, earlier, although I still am concerned about them weight bearing through um, an arthroplasty, because these are typically um, patients with soft bone, essentially a fragility fracture. The glenoid's not going to be sclerotic, so that fixation in the glenoid's not going to be um, as solid as in a typical case. What are your thoughts, Gary? Anything to add? Um, I don't think so. I think they've covered it pretty well. I, I would probably say I'd try to fix it if I can. If, if they're weight-bearing upper extremity, I'd like them to keep their shoulder if at all possible. Uh, but I think the fracture will determine it a little bit more than and other patient factors determining more. But I'd probably say if I can fix it and, and keep them with their native bone, I'd prefer that. All right, let's get into the specifics for those cases if and when you're doing a reverse. What's your technique? Are you going cemented, cementless? Do you have certain parameters that you use to decide if you're going to cement? And are you using a specific fracture stem or are you using whatever you regularly use for, you know, an, uh, a rotator cuff arthropathy reverse, for example? Uh, Gary, let's start with you. Tell us cemented, cementless, and specific fracture stem or just run-of-the-mill components. Um, I'm primarily cementless in growth stem. Uh, and I most often use a revision type stem currently or a fracture type stem. Okay, Bill, how about you? So I'm kind of uh, transitioning what I'm doing in my practice. So uh, when I started off, I was doing cemented fixation with a uh, fracture uh, stem uh, from various systems. Um, so when I was in uh, at Mayo in residency, we looked up at a multi-center retrospective series and, and the cemented group uh, did have some better patient reported outcomes. Um, definitely flaws with that study, but that's a little bit of what I was doing. Um, now going more towards a um, cementless uh, fixation um, with various types of stems, typically using a standard uh, stem that I use for a typical arthritic or cuff arthropathy cases though. And then Jim, how about you? What do you bring into the OR with you when you book one of these cases reverse for fracture? What's, what's on your pick list there? Well, I have to admit that what, what I want and what I end up using are not always the same. And uh, I, I'm sure that everybody, everybody here is kind of snickering about this, but there's a lot more factors than maybe this is the ideal stem you want. There's, there are base plate considerations, there are sphere considerations, uh, there are angulation uh, on the stem considerations. If, if I had an ideal and uh, then I would like a non-cemented uh, stem which had an inclination of about 135 degrees uh, that had inset quality um, and then had low profile on the upper aspect of the stem uh, with features that allow proper surclage fixation of the tuberosities. And I think the other folks that are on this call, they could take probably any stem that's out there and make it look good. 
And the most important thing is to get the stem height, the stem retroversion, and the tuberosities to heal to the shaft. Um, and however you do that is really fine. Um, um, so a little more than maybe you wanted, but uh, that's the story. That's I think that's exactly what we want. I mean, this is what I'm hoping to get into with you guys is when you do a reverse for fracture, you know, it sounds like you're each using kind of a cementless component. Ideally, it sounds like there's already some experimentation going on. Jim, it sounds like you're at 135. Tell me why. Why is 135 better than 155 for fracture? Well, I would love to say it's because some uh, intellectual rationale that I have, uh, but it's it's not real. Uh, really, the the base plate and the and the sphere and the stems I've been using mostly uh, come from a single company, and they've had a variety of stems over the years, and they they have a stem that's relatively new that is inset, and uh, I'm using more inset, and I'm realizing that an inset stem with 135 degrees for me, just ends up making the operation go a little smoother, uh, doesn't overstuff the joint. Um, it gets a good reduction. This particular stem that I have has room to put a tuberosity around it. And I have the ability to do surclage suture fixation. So uh, I, I've ended up with this 135 inset because um, the company associated with the glenoid componentry I use uh, uh, came out with a stem like that and I've just started using it and like it. Okay, let's hear from you, Bill. What is what is the ideal neck shaft angle for fracture and why? So um, I can't answer that because I don't think we know or I know. Um, and I've used all different um, kinds. You know, I think it's just a matter of understanding the system you have and how you're going to tension it. So, you know, for me, I, I probably tension these a little looser than I do a standard reverse, um, put the stem in slightly less retroversion to take tension over that off that tuberosity so it heals better. Um, aim to get, and, and someone else had mentioned it already, to get the tuberosity to overlay the shaft because the tuberosity heals to the humerus, not to the stem. Um, so it's more about achieving those principles uh, with whatever system you're going to use. Um, but right now I'm using a 145 to be right in the middle of those two options you said suggested, Pete. I love it. The compromise solution. So you're, are you typically using what, 30 degrees retroversion and you put it in maybe 20 for a fracture? Correct. That's Correct. exactly right. All right, Gary, tell us the answer. What's, what is it? Is it 135? Is it 145? Is it 155? Is it something else? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. What are you using right now? Um, I mean, there's certainly some company bias of of what I use, but and if, if you want that, we can certainly include that. But I, I, I certainly have some company bias in terms of what stems I'm currently using. Um, I like ingrowth stems. I like revision stems. I've used fracture stems. I use a variety of them. Um, I if the fracture can be managed with the regular stem I'm using for cuff tear arthropathy or massive cuff tear. I'll put those in. So I think if you look back through my cases to the past two years, you'd probably find a number of different stems that I've used for fracture. And again, I don't think 
the stem necessarily matters as much. I look for, you know, what are the bone factors? Where do I want the ingrowth? Where, how are my tuberosities going to repair? What's going to line up with the reduction? How much tensions they're going to be? Are we going to be over-tensioning an osteoporotic bone, putting that risk fracture for risk for stress fracture? All those things kind of play into this. Um, so I'm, I'm very much, uh, there's a lot of things in the toolbox and there's not one right answer for all of them in my opinion. All right. Speaking of not one right answer, let's hear what you guys are doing with the tuberosities. Tell our listeners, how do we manage the tuberosities in these cases? What are your strategies and what are your pearls? Jim, let's start with you. What do you do with the greater, lesser, et cetera? Well, the first thing and uh, Bill already mentioned it is not over tensioning. And um, the thing the surgeon has to remember is when you put a reverse in and then start testing for tension and don't have the tuberosities on, you can really over lengthen the, the joint or over lengthen the humerus from the uh, scapula. And that can make it uh, impossible to get the tuberosities back under uh, either impossible to get them back or when they, when they go back, they're highly tensioned. So you have to make sure that you don't over tension um, the, uh, the components. As far as, you know, then, then putting the tuberosities on there, um, Bill mentioned it also, is that you have to have the tuberosities healing to the shaft. They don't heal to the implant. And uh, so if you're cementing, you have to make sure you get the cement out and it doesn't uh, st- get stuck in between the tuberosity and the shaft. And the and then the last thing I say, because I'm sure the other guys have some other great pearls as well, but I use surclage, fixa- surclage heavy suture fixation uh, with a knot that uh, can be tensioned, a, a racking hitch knot, essentially. Um, and I use three or four of them. So you can tighten them in parallel, get really nice fixation and um, a really nice reduction, uh, uh, usually under image intensification. Okay, so it sounds like you're using surclages. Um, are you drilling any holes in the shaft that the sutures go through, or is it all surclage? After the surclage, thanks for pointing that out. I also uh, have a vertical figure of eight suture that goes uh, through the basically the rotator interval down to the humeral shaft. All right, Bill, tell us what you do. What are your tricks for the tuberosities? And uh, maybe, you know, I'm sure this has never happened to you, but where have you seen this gone wrong on second opinions or, or you know, non-unions, malunions, malreductions, et cetera? Yeah, um, you know, so I, I do a lot of the things um, Jim talked about. Um, you know, I think one of the keys and pearls I, I have that I, I learned early on is take the time when you first expose to mobilize everything, tag the tuberosities, uh, make sure you have um, good control of, of all the, the fragments. Uh, and the, you know, one pearl I think I have, and Jim alluded to a little bit, is having some uh, image intensification or fluoroscopy in the OR. So one thing I do is get the glenosphere in, put the humerus roughly where I think it needs to go, um, and with a trial reduction, bring my tagging sutures around the stem provisionally to kind of see where the tuberosities are sitting 
um, with a fluoroscopy image. And so then you know where your height is um, and then where those tuberosities are able to get to with the amount of mobilization you've done. And so I think the biggest um, mistake I've seen is those tuberosities pull off because you're tensioning them at the very end, tying them at the very end, and you don't know that you can get them back to where you want them to get. Technical question for our listeners. Are you bringing in fluoroscopy from the same side or the opposite side for these cases? So I, I'm actually bringing them uh, from the head. Uh, from the head. Over the top. Yep. How about Gary, Jim, when you use fluoro for these cases or for your proximal humerus RIFs, where are you bringing in the fluoro from? I bring it from the opposite side and uh, it, it is always a bit of a challenge and something you have to set up when you position the patient. Uh, it won't just happen automatically if you're already in the case and the x-ray tech shows up with the uh, machine. I bring it in from the opposite side for open reduction and internal fixation. I bring it in from the same side for arthroplasty. And then Gary, let's let's hear from you. What are your tricks with the tuberosities? Anything we haven't heard yet or anything that you found works really well or anything that maybe doesn't work so well that you can educate our listeners on? Sure. I mean, I think this is where we should spend the majority of the talk because this is what I think most affects the outcomes, how these patients do, because the tuberosity repair is extremely important. Um, a couple of tricks. Uh, one that I'll give credit to my fellowship, I learned some fellowship, is when you go and you find the lesser tuberosity, flip it inside out because there's almost always a fragment of articular surface on the underside of it. Uh, flip it around, grab that with a rongeur and remove it. It'll help aid in your reduction because that can often block your reduction for the lesser. Um, there are a number of really great ways to repair tuberosity. I don't know which one's the best, so as many things I do, I just do them all. It's perhaps overkill, but I'd rather have too much than not enough. So what I mean by that is in terms of cerclage, um, I place a minimum of four sutures around the greater. Um, a lot of places will say to place two around the lesser. Ultimately, I basically do four around the greater. It'll ultimately be three of those will also go around the lesser as a complete cerclage. The first suture to be tied will be my isolated um, greater to the arthroplasty tying. Um, I always have two sutures, always in general, have two sutures going through the shaft. If it's really low, sometimes I'll put them through the stem, but most often I try to put them through the humeral shaft, and they each function as a uh, check ring for superior migration for the greater and lesser. They crisscross, and one goes to each. And then I also do a tension band. After everything's closed and cerclaged, I take one suture and go proximal to distal through the lateral rotator cuff, cross as an X, go proximal to distal through the subscapularis and bring it over to act as a tension band tight uh, technique. And then it tries to close the rotator interval as much as possible. Um, a couple tricks have a way to do it and do that every time, right? Or try to repeat as much as possible. Don't modify it while you're in the operating room. Uh, I like to use uh, large non-absorbable, something like a uh, Tycron or some big thick suture. For me, I use those because also because they're a different color than my tension or retraction sutures. I use ethibonds for retention or retraction because it's always green. So when I'm reducing proximal humerus fractures, I'm always pulling on the green ones because that's going to be the reduction. I don't like to keep them because they tend to get nicked by wires and screws. So I'll always replace them with some type of non-absorbable later, usually which is blue, so I can tell the difference. Um, 
I don't know. I think it's the majority of some tips to, to add for tuberosity repair, but I feel like we could talk about how to repair tuberosities for a long time. And I think the trick is please don't throw them away. They're important. This is, so this is what I was hoping to get into in this is when, is that kind of just, cause I, the, the first time I, I saw someone draw out for me their tuberosity repair and there were like 16 different colors and the sutures are all going different directions. I was, this is, this is what I, like the, the complexity I was hoping to get into. You mentioned the lesser. We didn't hear from Bill and Jim about the lesser. Do you, so Bill, do you incorporate the lesser? Do you think, do you worry sometimes the lesser compromises the, the fixation you get on the greater if you have those kind of round the world stitches? What are you doing with the lesser? So, so I am repairing it. Um, and, you know, I think the point Gary made of taking off that articular uh, bone on the other side, I always find myself shelling out some of that lesser to help with the reduction. Um, but it, I feel like it still gets there. And I don't think it adds too much uh, tension to the greater. Um, a part of that is, as I mentioned, I don't tension the, the reverse um, as tight as I do for a standard case. Um, but I do think it adds value. I think closing that um, interval um, is also helpful as a kind of a taking the tension off the entire construct. Um, so I do things very much like Gary had mentioned. And what about you, Jim? Yes, I, I repair the lesser and uh, I don't have much to add to what Bill just uh, described. Yeah, one thing I, I'd like to add just to, you know, have these thoughts that you or came to your mind, you didn't mention. Um, some things with tuberosity repairs, I, I almost, I mean, never say always, but I was always graft. Like, I think it's important to graft on the tuberosities. I take the humeral head. Uh, I like to send the medical student or whoever's in the room with me to go to the back table, shell out as much graft as they can get out of it, graft under the grater, tie that down. And then I also try to graft in around the stem and under the lesser. Um, and in terms of sutures, one other trick that I do it sometimes, I, I use a uh, continuous compression suture device as well. Um, it's proprietary in a company, but it's, it's a, it'll continue to provide compression. So if they have good enough bone, uh, that's a, an option for you to ensure continued tension. And Peter, if I could just add one other thing to that, uh, because I, I love what Gary just said. Um, and that's the mentality that I think that he's describing is that, yeah, sure, we're putting an arthroplasty in, but this is a fracture operation. If you want the top quality result for your patients, you have to treat this like a fracture. And And all the things that Gary said about reducing it, about getting secure fixation, about bone grafting, about thinking about the biologic. Um, that's going to get you the best results. The greater tuberosity, if it uh, heals in an appropriate position, the function is going to be much better. The lesser matters, matters less. Um, the greater matters a lot. One yeah, I, mean, I could not thing. agree with all you guys more. I mean, I, I just think I'm so glad that this is coming out because I think it's the most critical part of the whole discussion about reverse refracture is the tuberosity. Um, what were we going to say, Bill? I thought I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, no problem. You know, one thing I also want to mention, and Gary alluded to it as well, is the, the humoral head and, and the timeout with your team in the OR is that this is not a standard reverse case. Um, and so I think it's really important in the beginning, you know, during that timeout is, you know, make sure no one passes the humeral head off the field. Um, I learned that the hard way um, recently. Um, so, you know, I think it's one of those things, you know, follow the biceps tendon into the shoulder, 
get control of the tuberosities, pull the humeral head out and have somebody start um, mashing up some graft for you um, and make sure it doesn't get passed off. And so those are just little uh, tidbits of the preparation phase that I think all of us have been alluding to that I think is really important. All right, so so much great advice from on how to do a reverse refracture. Let's move on to the to the the perennial nail versus plate debate. So I just want to ask for each of you guys: are there are there certain cases that are always nails, always plates? What what for you are the relative indications for each of those fixation devices? What do you think, Jim? Well, generally speaking, again, if we're talking about a fracture that we can fix and not something that we really feel like it's going to be best managed for arthroplasty. We'll assume that's the kind of patient we're talking about. For me, if it's a two-part surgical neck, I'm almost always doing a nail. If the fracture maybe extends up into the greater tuberosity or the lesser tuberosity, but generally speaking, the fracture is a two-part, I'll still use nail. I think a nail, there are other people who are much more talented in using the nail who use it for three and four part, that's not me. Um, so for me, it's pretty simple. Two part surgical neck, I use a nail in almost all cases. And then the rest of them is a, a plate and screws. What do you think, Gary? What what for you are the, what, what are the relative indications for each of these fixation devices in your hands? Absolutely. So I'm just gonna, I mean, I think we in plate, we're pretty well comfortable with. In terms of nail, um, so my indications for proximal humeral nailing is uh, long, highly, uh, highly comminuted metaphyseal fractures, one that would require a very large exposure or inability to directly anatomically reduce due to comminution, so you can span it with a nail, or a two-part surgical neck fracture. Um, I'm looking, if they have tuberosity involvement, it needs to be a large enough tuberosity fragment with the surgical neck fracture that I can adequately achieve fixation of the tuberosity with the nail. And then the patient factors I'm looking for, patients with either pre-existing rotator cuff pathology or the low demand or not cuff dependent uh, patients. And then since you asked about some tips, some tips are proximal humeral nailing is it's not, I put a nail in and use the nail to reduce. Don't forget the reduction. I reduce everything prior to inserting the nail uh, and especially ensure rotation before you pass the nail. Um, I like exposure through the medial cuff. I like to tag it for repair afterwards. Make sure that you can, we talked about this earlier, get the radiographs before you start your surgery. And lastly is for the distal interlocks for long proximal nails, I open them and do open interlocking uh, so I don't have to be concerned about the, the nerve rather than percutaneous. What are your thoughts, Bill? Who, who's the nail patient? Who's the plate patient? So, you know, I'll admit, you know, I'm very biased towards um, plating. It's just something I'm more comfortable with. But the, those two uh, fracture patterns that Gary described um, with that metaphyseal extension um, and uh, a two-part fracture, those are going to be the, the times I consider it. Um, and I, I have done it. Uh, for those reasons, you know, I think another um, uh, preparation tip um, is just making sure however you position these patients, you're able, in addition to getting the images, extend that arm enough. Um, so, you know, I typically use a little plexiglass um, on the side of a Jackson table for radiolucency, but you have to kind of make sure that there's enough room to extend um, the arm around that um, to, to be able to insert the device and not lose the reduction um, that you've achieved. 
All right, I have two questions for each of you. And again, this is more on logistics, particularly for our younger listeners who may not have as much experience, but also for our seasoned listeners who are just hoping to hear from you guys, the experts. So do you use TXA in the OR for these cases um, to help with you know bleeding, et cetera? Um, yes or no? And then the second question is, depending on what type of case you do for the fracture, be it a reverse, a nail, or a plate, is your rehab exactly the same or do you change that or modify that so let's start um let's go right back to bill what are txa yes or no and then do you change your your post-op protocol based on what you do so uh for me i use txa on almost every uh open shoulder case i do regardless of what it is so so the answer is yes for me um and in terms of rehab um and part of this and, and i guess this is also for the young listeners is the my initial practice, um, I went to multiple different sites, different hospitals, different sets of residents, um, didn't have a centralized um, place uh, for phone calls to go. So I basically try to make my rehab as um, identical and consistent. Um, so for me, I don't really change the rehab at all between uh, those three options you mentioned. If anything, for the reverse for fracture, I go a little slower than my standard reverse because I really do want to make sure that those tuberosities heal. Gary, how about you? TXA, yes or no? And then any differences in rehab protocol based on what you do? I do not use TXA, but I do use um, a local thrombotic agent um, administered. So it's not TXA though. Uh, and in terms of the rehab protocol, the reverse for fracture and ORAF protocol are pretty much the same. I don't, I'm, I'm conservative. I don't allow strengthening or weight bearing until three months. So I'd say it, the reverse for fracture, just like Will says, is longer than a reverse for like cuff tear arthropathy. And then Jim, how about you? TXA, yes or no? And then rehab protocol. And then I guess one other question, what do you tell these patients is the ultimate expectation for function? Do you say your shoulder should be normal at the end of all this after a year, or your shoulder will never be normal, but it should be functional? How do you guide them? Because oftentimes this is a devastating injury, particularly for those older patients who, who might lose some independence with this. I use TXA. Um, most of the patients are showing reasonable consolidation at six or eight weeks. So at that point, I'm comfortable advancing them to weight bearing. Uh, and then as far as what to tell them, I never use the word normal. Uh, and uh, I, I re really, it depends on what fracture you're, you're, you, you have and what fixation you're doing. So for somebody who has a two-part surgical neck fracture or a proximal humerus fracture that's going to be well reduced with a uh, plate and screws, I think those are, those will get usually good functional range of motion but not normal range of motion and good strength um, a reverse um, again yeah you, you have to walk the dog on uh, what to expect from a reverse which is the appearance is different and the internal rotation oftentimes is not as good as uh, what they started out with um, and we're and assuming that we can get the tuberosities to heal then they should be able to reach up to the horizontal probably to their head probably wash their hair and if the tuberosity doesn't heal, they may have some definite functional problems like reaching the salt shaker on their on the outside uh, of them uh, when they're at the table. Yeah, I think for our listeners, whether you're treating these fractures non-surgically, and we haven't really talked about that in this, you know, in this podcast or surgically, 
one of the first things I say to these patients is your shoulder is never going to be the same. And, um, and they need to hear that right away because everyone and their mothers had a fracture, but this is a different type of fracture, even the simple ones, but also the, the more difficult ones. And I, I think if we set the stage for this is just a rotator cuff or just a reverse or just another shoulder surgery, you're going to set your patients up for, for disappointment, even if you do a, a technically excellent job and everything heals. So um, just words of wisdom that it's never, I, I use that word normal purposefully to see how you'd react because these are never normal. The shoulders will never be the same. We're getting close to the end of the podcast. This has been phenomenal over the course of 30, 40 minutes. We've covered the whole spectrum really of surgical management of proximal humerus fractures. Anything you guys want to add that we didn't cover or any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Gary, how about you? I think you just said is that the majority of these are are non-operatively managed. Um, We're talking about the minority of cases in terms of what the uh, operative and most optimal operative management is. And I agree, it's never, quote unquote, normal again. And Bill, your thoughts? Um, I would echo that. Um, these are these are the patients that you have to take the time to talk to them, um, make sure that they understand um, and that they hear what you're telling them, sometimes bringing a family member. You know, this isn't the case to book that the resident saw in the ER and called you and you're going to meet the patient the day of. It's important to have them come to the office and chat with them about all the options and understand the patient factors, the fracture frac- uh, factors, um, and what they want to achieve uh, as their goals. Jim, any final words of wisdom for our listeners here? I think that uh, age is not an absolute when you're trying to decide what to do about these patients. Um, so some older patients will do very well with open reduction internal fixation. You don't have to re- jump right to a reverse. And um, then the second thing I'd say is that sometimes you'll see the x-ray ahead of time of seeing the patient and you'll wonder, hmm, am I going to fix this or am I going to do a prosthesis? Then you walk into the room and meet the patient and you immediately know what you're going to do. And so just to echo what Bill said, it's it's really sizing up the patient and getting an idea what that patient's expectations and what what's going to be best for that patient and, and meeting them and talking to them. Uh, oftentimes helps clarify and make the decision pretty simple. Rachel, I have uh, just one other thing to add, if that's okay. Um, Absolutely. This is, you know, the the third most common non-vertebral osteoporotic fracture uh, that we see. It's a very, very common fracture. We, I tell my patients I'm blessed being as a, in the shoulder fracture clinic that I can maybe interject and help their overall bone health. So, all of my patients with proximal hemorrhage fractures get the bone health discussion, uh, recommendations for DEXA scans, evaluation. I do a lot of evaluation of vitamin D. I treat almost everyone with vitamin D. I do a lot of lab levels for that um, and send them to bone health clinic for, for counseling and management to prevent future osteoporotic fractures such as a hip fracture. So I tell them, you know, it's unfortunate they broke your shoulder, but we're, you're lucky that this wasn't a hip this time and let's try to prevent future fractures. Well, I want to thank you guys for coming on. It was just, as Rachel said, a wealth of great advice on uh, what I think, as I mentioned in the beginning, can be a very difficult pathology. And again, as I mentioned in the beginning, when done poorly can create a near disaster that can be difficult to salvage. So you guys really, um, really, really brought it out here. We really appreciate all of uh, your time and um, wisdom. Um, that's about all the time we have for this podcast. Thanks so much to our guests. For all of our Shoulder Nebel listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time.